All right. Well, welcome to the latest episode of the Columbia Basin Conservative Institute podcast. Josh and Ken here as usual. And really, uh, really happy to have on a special guest today. John Devaney from the Washington State Tree Fruit Association is joining us today. Um, John, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, first off, let's let's give you a ball on a tee here. Like, what does your organization do? So we're uh, a voluntary nonprofit industry trade association. You always have to differentiate yourself within the agricultural world between the voluntary organizations that growers and packers and shippers of fruit or other commodities choose to join and the state commissions, which are created. And once they're in government, uh, they're mandatory and they have taxing authority. (laughs) The growers vote as a majority to collect funds. Uh, to do certain things, but uh, as as a voluntary association, I have to ask nicely. Uh, and so we have a couple of functions on behalf of the industry. We collect data and statistics. It doesn't sound too exciting, but if you're a grower who wants to know what fruit's selling for, where it's going, that's really useful information to plan how you you know will market your product, where the marketing opportunities are, what varieties you should be planting, and so on. We do education and training. Uh, Growers and their employees need to be up on the latest trends and have all the compliance training for their workforce, those kinds of things. Uh, And we also do the industry's lobbying and government affairs work in Olympia and at the local level. Yeah. So obviously agriculture, huge in Washington. I mean, apples comes to mind immediately, cherries, and even down to wine grapes and, and all that. So um, yeah, what what exactly is under your purview on in the tree fruit, supposedly? So fruits that grow on trees. Yeah. So, yeah, which sounds trite, but you know, you think about wine grapes. Well, they're on vines, yeah. so they're yep. not mine. Yep. <laughs> Blueberries are on bushes. I don't handle bushes, just trees. So apples, pears, cherries, peaches, and apricots. Uh, those kinds of fruits. With apples being the biggest by far, apples are the number one crop in Washington State consistently. Uh, for the last year for which statistics are available, it was about $2 billion of apple production in Washington out of about $12 billion in farm gate production value for all of Washington agriculture. Yeah. And so we have, I mean, obviously every year there's a lot of legislation, both at the state level and at the federal level surrounding agriculture. And we want to get into some of that, but, um, sort of leading into that, I I know, well, you know, um, Friend of our organization and former podcast guest, uh, April Connors. She helped uh, state uh, state rep from the 8th district. She helped pass some legislation furthering ag internships. How is the industry or your organization specifically trying to appeal to younger generations to have them be more interested in the field of agriculture and you know whether that's you know general labor or more. Um, innovative techie type jobs that are springing up in agriculture is is that an area where you find it difficult to appeal to the younger generation yeah that is really important for us because uh we are a very labor dependent uh industry unlike midwestern agriculture where you can do just about everything from uh the back of large pieces of equipment fruit and vegetable crops and especially tree fruit requires a lot of people uh who are growing pruning picking and packing fruit. Uh, And it's not just the handwork of growing and picking the crops. It's also a lot of people who specialize in marketing, uh, 
and monitoring and storing and delivering those crops. So we have a lot of need for workforce development going into the future. And one of the challenges, as you pointed out, is that when, you, when you're an industry that's been around either the longest or the second longest, depending on who you ask in, in human history, uh, there's a tendency to take that work for granted and to think you understand what an industry looks like uh, when you really don't know what it looks like in the present day. So when we, when we say agriculture, we tend to get the American Gothic view of a farmer and not to understand exactly what it is people involved in production agriculture do in the modern world. Uh, so we have to overcome that with a lot of young people where they think they know what that is and that it's not for them if, you know, based on what they imagine it to be. Uh, and then when you get them to understand that what we really need are computer programmers and, and robotic equipment engineers and international sales and marketing executives, in addition to people that do horticultural research and work on farms, then it starts to sound more interesting to those young people. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking I made a, a poor choice in my career direction here. Uh, John, I wish you chatted with me about 10 years ago. <laughs> well, you know, what's, that is one of the nice things about the, the chaotic world we've had over the last few years is a lot more young people are becoming interested in careers that might be uh, more tangible uh, and have a real meaningful place in the world. You've seen that with a lot of young people's greater interest in skilled trades, for example. They want something that they can reach out and touch where they see the, the actual outcome of what they're doing and that's probably going to be there in the future. Uh, you know, Technology changes how we do things, but it's unlikely that chat GPT is going to be growing fruit for us in the near future. Uh, or that you'll be able to digitally download your fruit right to your phone. You know, they're still going to need to be the, the the skills and the people producing physical things and moving them. And that resistance to scalability or full digitization means that careers in agriculture are going to be a lot more durable than a lot of the, the thinking jobs or service jobs that we thought were the future for, for so long. Uh, I got to ask you, as, as the, the industry expert here, Objectively speaking, just on flavor alone, Cosmic Crisps are the best apples, right? They're great. They're one of my favorites, <laughs> uh, but there are so many uh, apples. And a lot of, uh, if for me, I, I tend to like different apples over the course of the season too. Uh, you know, when you get into midsummer, for example, I'm pretty much myself eating mostly uh, what is generically known as the Crips Pink and is branded known as the Pink Lady Apple because it's a very firm apple. Uh, and so it stores really well. And so you get to the end of the season, you know, 10 months, 11 months in storage, those are still coming out in great shape. Uh, and then at the start of the new season, I might switch to, you know, uh, a honey crisp that's coming right off the tree in August, you know, uh, and then enjoy all the other varieties, dozens of them over the course of the season. Uh, that's one of the things that folks were used to asking me all the time, which is like, what is the next Red Delicious? It was about 25 years ago that two thirds of the apples grown in Washington were two varieties, Red Delicious and Golden Delicious. It was sort of that Henry Ford model of industrialized production. You standardize and then just crank out the same thing over and over again. And that worked well in the mid 20th century when we were developing distribution chains. 
But that's not how consumers take products now. They don't want just one or two choices. They want dozens of choices and they want it to come and go seasonally and they want something new all the time. It's very much the way Starbucks brings, you know, pumpkin spice lattes back every fall, right? So we have to be offering different apple varieties over the course of the season and having uh, the challenge of managing an inventory that might look like a couple of dozen apple varieties instead of two or three. Well, I, I, I didn't expect Ken to, you know, open this can of worms, but, um, I remember, I want to say 10, 15 years ago, I fell in love with jazz apples, which they were perfectly acidic and I'm a Utah jazz fan. So it's just perfect for me, but I haven't seen them in a while. Is that still a thing? They're still out there, but there's fewer and fewer of them. That's one that, uh, you know, has uh, has found some customers that are very fond of it, but it hasn't grown at the same rate that some other varieties like Honeycrisp, like Cosmic Crisp, have been growing. Uh, and that is that's the challenge. Like with a lot of consumer products, you know, we we see something get introduced, we might personally like it, and if it doesn't catch on with enough people. Uh, the the producers may decide, well, I'm just not going to offer that anymore. You know, that's my personal pet peeve whenever I go to Costco. Every product I fall in love with is yeah. going to be discontinued. <laughs> of course. Yeah, well, um, I didn't, I was going to ask this, but I just realized that chatting about different careers in, in the industry, actually curious, you know, one of the things we're dedicated to is is uh, helping folks interested in politics, policy, or might be identify uh, potential career paths or, or uh identify ways of getting involved. And so just curious, how did, how did you find yourself in this role? Um, do, do you have a background in, in ag or, or were you all as a policy guy at heart? Or, no, or how'd you end I, up I, was a, I was a policy guy. Um, I uh, only had a background in agriculture the same way that all of us do as consumers. Uh, I grew up in the state, so I was always aware of the apple industry, lived uh, in Kitsap County until I was about 16 and then moved to the Tri-Cities where my father got a job at uh, PNNL. Um, and uh, ended up working in Washington, D.C. Um, I'd gone back there for graduate school in history, of all things, uh, and ended up working for former Congressman Doc Hastings uh, when he was first elected uh, and worked for him in D.C. and eventually here in, back home in the state. Uh, as one of the constituents, people actually from the state working on the staff, they said, hey, you know about the state. How would you like to do some ag issues work? And I said, well, those are nice people, sure. <laughs> and I love the issues and I love the people. And it, it turned into a, a really great opportunity to focus on an area of policy that maybe not everyone was engaged in. Uh, everyone seems to want to do foreign affairs and defense and you know things that sound sexier maybe. Uh, but I, I thought that working ag issues was fantastic. Uh, and after that uh, time working for for Doc, I ended up working for the Bush administration at U.S. Department of Agriculture, doing rural economic development here in the state. I was a political appointee here in Washington State, uh, and uh, from there I went back to uh, working in the private sector for the tree fruit industry for one of the predecessor organizations of the Tree Fruit Association. It was called the Yakima Valley Growers and Shippers Association, which. You know, this is a little bit of a longer story, but, you know, if you look at apple production and, and agriculture here in our state, it, there used to be a lot more farms. I don't think that's a, a surprise to most people. Uh, but if you go back to the early 20th century there, we peaked at around 45,000 different farms growing apples in the state of Washington. 
So there was a lot of people involved in the industry then. And that spawned a lot of different organizations. But over time, while the, the total production has gone up about sevenfold uh, in the state, the number of producers themselves is less than 10% of what it was uh, in the mid 20th century. Uh, so that's just the story of efficiency and, and consolidation in a maturing industry. Uh, so we had a lot of legacy organizations that were then uh, had a lot of overlapping membership, uh, and it didn't make sense to have quite so many industry organizations. So a lot of our, our industry leaders did extensive negotiations, and we did a four-way industry merger where four different nonprofit industry organizations in tree fruit merge together to form the Washington State Tree Fruit Association in 2014. We want to dive into some of the Washington-specific policies and initiatives um, specifically impacting uh, your organization and agriculture in general. But before we get there, I got to ask a, a federal level question. We hear about this every few years. What is the Farm Bill? The Farm Bill is the federal legislation passed every five years to set agricultural policy uh, and, and establish most agricultural programs. Uh, what most people don't realize is that the vast majority of the funding in the farm bill is for food and nutrition programs. It's really the food bill. Uh, and But uh, for the ag producer side, what is more interesting is the specific programs that affect uh, research, trade promotion, uh, for some crops, direct payments or supports, uh, not something that's very uh, relevant for most uh, fruit and vegetable or specialty crop producers here in Washington. It really is the, the wheat, corn, and soybeans folks that get most of those you know, direct payment support kind of programs. But here uh, for tree fruit, for example, we have a great deal of interest in research and development support programs through, uh, through the Farm Bill, uh, as well as trade promotion, because we do tend to export around uh, 25 to 30 percent of our crops year to year. And so, well, you mentioned direct support and, you know, we're a conservative podcast and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how deep into the weeds of uh, conservative uh, philosophy we get here, but um, how, how prevalent are subsidies in the state of Washington or even the Pacific Northwest? Like I, I know that sugar, for instance, in Florida is, is huge as far as subsidies and some sort of uh, protectionism there, but is, is that a thing or we just, how free market are we up here in the Pacific Northwest? Much more free market than most people probably think. Uh, most of the USDA programs supporting agriculture are focused on a few staple commodities, you know, milk, wheat, corn, and so on. Uh, fruit and vegetable crops, generally the financial or programmatic assistance they get from the federal government tend to be tied to specific matching funds for things that are of public interest to support. So if you are participating in a conservation program, for example, uh, to reduce your water use or improve wildlife habitat on part portions of your land, uh, you will get some federal matching funds uh, through a conservation program to supplement what you, the grower and landowner are doing. Uh, and to incentivize that. Uh, but it's not just a, here's some money for existing kind of payment. Uh, or there is funding for promoting products to match grower dollars that are put up to promote our products overseas. 
uh, which is in recognition of the fact that in many other countries do a lot of direct subsidy payments to their products. And so we really have to hustle to compete against producers overseas who really do have more direct payment support. Uh, so there's a lot of, of programs in the farm bill that we care about deeply. And yes, they are government funds that are, are assisting efforts of agricultural producers, but it's not the the giveaways that uh, that most people imagine when they hear about government farm programs. So I guess speaking of, of um, some of the assistance and competition, you touched on this a bit when you talked about the decline in uh, producers the last few years. And you mentioned efficiencies, and I'm sure uh, a fair amount of that is, but I was, I was curious if you knew kind of, or, or if you could maybe talk about, about how much of that um, uh, decrease in producers was from raw efficiencies, it takes less work or, or less labor to uh, farm, you know, X number of acres and it did 15 years ago versus some of those competitive pressures that you just talked about um, with yeah. regards to, to external importers, things like that. Where, where, or what's been the, the, the largest pressure on, on our producers last, you know, 10, 15 years? There's a couple of, of significant pressures on producers, and it's hard to disentangle them from each other being, mm -hmm. you know, because they, they can be happening at the same time. Yeah. I will say that you're dealing with broader economic pressures of competing against states and countries with just lower base production costs. You know, mm -hmm. If you're competing against a Chilean apple farm and an other international market, well, you know, Latin American wages are going to be lower. Um, you know, their regulatory climate in some countries is far less stringent than it is in the U.S. in general and Washington state in particular. You know, this is not a bolt from the blue that Washington state is not a low cost place to do business uh, in, in any form. So our producers have to be very efficient in order to remain competitive. And we rely on our quality advantage uh, mm. to to offset that. Uh, we might not ever be the lowest cost sale, you know, seller of apples, but uh, we are the value seller because we are selling something that's of outstanding quality at, at a reasonable price uh, for what you're getting. Uh, are we the lowest price? No, but you know, I would rather be a Honda Accord than you know the cheapest discount car from an unknown manufacturer. You know, we're not going to be, you know, be able to compete if we're the Lamborghini, however. And so it's always that tension of. Uh, how much value are we delivering and how far can we allow our, our, our costs of production to rise and still remain competitive, uh, even with our quality advantages? And those are not just market forces affecting that, because a lot of the costs that go into producing are also driven by government policy decisions, both at the state and the federal level. So, for example, you know, we recently had in Washington state, the, the Climate Commitment Act was passed, and it was supposed to have exempted uh, trade uh, in energy intensive and trade uh, dependent industries and agriculture specifically for five years uh, from those additional fuel charges in the Climate Commitment Act. But ecology struggled to figure out how to segregate out agricultural uses from the entire fuel supply chain. So since the beginning of this year, most agricultural producers have still been paying that 40 to 60 or more cents per gallon fuel surcharge uh, and telling their fuel producers, I'm supposed to be exempt. Why, why is this showing up on my bill? And uh, they said they have been giving various iterations of, well, ecology has not told us how we can legally separate that out, what documentation we have to show. Uh, unless you're buying fuel by the tanker full, how do I, how do, I do that when I send it to a, a 
uh, you know, fuel, you know, distributor, uh, you might need to show some specific documentation, but no one has said what the rules of engagement are. And so as a result, Washington producers are paying this substantial fuel cost increase uh, that factors both into producing their crop and moving it around, you know, again, physical things, moving it to where it needs to go is a big part of those production costs. So those, those kinds of government driven factors, that's just one example, all factor into how much, uh, our producers are able to survive uh, because when you're under that level of financial stress, you really have got very few options. And one of the few options available is frequently, well, get bigger and survive on a very, very, very narrow margin spread across a lot broader base. Uh, and so that's when we get an environment where smaller producers feel they have no choice but to sell their operations and medium-sized operations feel they have no choice to survive but to expand you know sort of go go big or go away is the oft-used phrase hmm. so that's that's been driving that trend in consolidation across our industry and across much of agriculture yeah who who could have seen that coming um, <laughs> well, and it is frustrating because we we tell policymakers that you know when you yeah. apply reg, new, these new costs or, or regulatory complexity as well being a cost, uh, and yet you say you love small family farmers. Well, how much do you think a small family farm can absorb those costs or deal with a new you know eighty page state or federal regulation that's published? If you are one of the largest producers, you call your HR department and say, "Figure this one out for me." If you're you know Joe and Jane Smith farms, uh, they yeah. look at each other and they say, which of us gets to do the deal with this one? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, co complexity is a subsidy. So, um, the more complex regulations are, then the easier it is. Well, not easier. The more capacity, large, complex, deep pocketed organizations are able to handle those subsidies as opposed to the small mom and pop stores. And that's, that's across the board of any industry. And, um, you know, I don't want to start having to recommend people read Henry Hazlitt here, Economics in One <laughs> Lesson. You have to look at the downstream consequences, and it, I, it just gives me echoes of the um, long-term care <laughs> acts that were pushed forward where we're just going to push this legislation out. We don't exactly know how it's going to work out, but we'll see, and just everyone sees that it's broken. But so given that... like. There should be uh, some legislation forthcoming. Uh, there was a couple of attempts at legislation at the end of the last session uh, that was not not successful in getting moved. Uh, and ecology Department of Ecology had a work you know study group uh, to look at the issue over the summer, and they fleshed out more knowledge of the problems, but they did not really come to a clear and obvious solution. But I think that they showed some of the landmarks in the pathways to potentially fixing the problem for legislators. You know, many of us would say, well, they probably should have done that homework before passing the bill. Uh, you know, lessons learned for the future, we hope. Uh, but at least now, I think there's a little bit more information uh, for them out there. And we are expecting to see some legislative effort to address that issue. But again, if you're a farmer, you've been floating those costs that you're supposed to be exempted from for you know most of this year. And I know uh, Representative Connors brought up earlier, she's 
run or looking at working on a, a um, Dakar bill. Is that right? I'm trying to remember the anyway the rebate uh, program for for consumers. Um, has anything like that been? I understand not being able to calculate the the cost prior to it arriving, but has anything been worked out on like a rebate? Would that be potentially an option there or? That that is an option. The uh, that during that ecology work session, there was a, there was a strong desire on the part of the government agencies and the you know those in government in general to have the fuel industry figure that out uh, and not have them have to have the legislature reopen the bill. Uh, you know, and the the government uh, agencies were hoping that they could just let those fuel suppliers and, and refiners sort it out and provide that rebate. Uh, those large companies will point to the penalties for any potential right. uh, <laughs> failure to fully collect and remit funds that they might be obligated to do under the, uh, the, the Climate Commitment Act. So they were asking for a little bit more regulatory certainty rather than just saying, well, we'll do our best and trust that you won't find us in violation and slap us hard if we get it wrong. You know, another example, another example of those, you know, regulatory changes that you wish people had thought through more carefully before they pass them, you, you referenced the, uh, the Long-Term Care Act, uh, you know, in an environment where we talk about equity so much in our state, they, they passed that law, uh, collecting taxes on people who would start work in our state, uh, and who would never retire here and might not even be eligible to permanently stay here. Uh, and so there have been uh, huge burdens on on migrant farm workers uh, paying this tax when they have no legal right to ever collect it. <laughs> uh, and that, that's something that should never have happened. Uh, employment security is looking into uh, trying to get a fix to that. But, you know, that's well into the you know, collection of the tax and in an environment where we're so sensitive to impacts on vulnerable communities the fact that you know even though we warned that this this would be a problem for the farm worker community uh it was it was passed and and not really considered they just steamrolled ahead with that bill it's that's the kind of frustrating thing that uh happens a little too often there's there's the uh ready fire aim approach to legislating don't don't let the details of getting it right stand in the way of momentum towards doing something even if it's the wrong thing yeah, well, I think that's a perfect segue into another area I wanted to touch on, which is the ag overtime rules, which, yeah, his, historically, and you can, you can refine the details here, is that, you know, that, w- that was essentially exempted um, from overtime rules, but there was a proposed fix. So, I mean, to rewind a little further, uh, they change the overtime rules to where now if you work in agriculture, you're eligible for overtime. And there is a proposed modification to that to allow for certain amount of weeks or time period during the year where um, essentially that would be waived. And there was a lot of testimony and, you know, both in person and online. And I, I almost wanted to cue this up so we can have clips of it. But there were there were certain uh, legislators who were even personally translating testimony of people who were giving their testimony in Spanish and sort of twisting what they were were offering there. And so I, I don't want to make you comment on that, but um, it, it's another perfect example of you have an idea of what you think this will do 
or what your end goal is, but how reality actually comes into play. And again, you know, Henry Hazlitt, economics in one lesson, you can't just look at what you want to have happen with this legislation. You have to look at all the downstream consequences and what, what will actually happen because the market will react. So when we say, all right, we're going to add overtime, it's not that we're just going to keep the same amount of employment. The market will adjust, right? Like, are you, let me ask you a question rather than me just pontificating. Are you seeing that your members, other people in the industry, are they keeping the same amount of employment, just paying people their overtime, or are they reducing their employment to adjust for that increased cost? So it's a little more complicated even than that. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. What, what, I, what I, is, I, sorry, I didn't mean to give you an A-B. Yeah, like tell me tell me what's actually happening. <laughs> so so uh, the as, as the overtime threshold has been ratcheted down because it was on a multi-year phase in, uh, what we found is that for most activities, farmers can't afford a 50% increase in their hourly cost. Uh, there is... Then this is another complication. There were a number of legislators who mistakenly were saying that farm workers were not getting paid for their work uh, when they worked overtime. That is very much the bias of someone who works a salary job and thinks that your salary is what it is. And you know, if you work for your 40 hours and anything extra is just sort of unpaid because that happens in a lot of salary positions. In agriculture, as in most hourly work, overtime hours just meant you were you were getting paid the same rate for additional hours on an right. hourly basis. Now, w- what is required is once you go over 40 hours starting in January, you have to pay time and a half. So whatever rate mm-hmm. you've been earning, you, it's a 50% increase. Uh, labor is more than 60% of the pro- variable production cost in tree fruit, for example, you know, not counting the cost of the land itself. So that's your biggest cost center in growing your crop. And you really can't afford a 50% increase under most circumstances. Now, if you have a really high value variety and a really strong customer demand for it, uh, it, it, and you can get all of the crop if you work a few overtime hours or none of it if you don't, under those circumstances, you might be able to justify paying some overtime pay. But in a lot of cases, what's happening is growers are saying, I can't afford a 50% increase to go back and pick that orchard a second time now that more of the fruit has gotten the right color development. So I got about 80% of the, that crop off. The remaining 20% is just going to fall to the ground. We're not going to pick that. Uh, so some work just doesn't get done. Uh, and in some cases, rather what is happening is some growers who can afford to are actually hiring more total people. Um, so you're working the same total number of hours. Uh, it's just instead of, uh, you know, a hundred people working, uh, 50 hours, you know, you yeah. add a few more people and all of them are working 40 hours. Okay. Uh, if you could find the people, that's, that's great. Um, and, and that often means you're going to go and, and recruit them, uh, cause you can't find them domestically. That's a whole other issue. You may be hiring additional temporary foreign workers uh, to come in and and have more of those. Uh, but if you are one of those farm workers who's already on the job and you're counting on working fifty hours and now you're going to work forty, uh, you're you're actually experiencing a loss of income uh, as a result. Yep. yep. Uh, it, it's very similar to anyone who knows someone that works restaurants or retail. 
You know, they might mm-hmm. not ever work 40 hours or more for the same employer, but they probably work at more than one store or restaurant. Uh, and, and they end up working the, the, the hours that they used to work. It's just now their scheduling is that much more complex. Unintended consequences will oftentimes uh, harm those that are intended to be helped. So in this case, farm workers, they wanted to have them, uh, I'm sure the, the sponsor of the bill wanted to have them on level playing field with other folks and across different industries who get that time and a half. Um, what are the farm workers saying about this bill now compared to what perhaps they were thinking would happen back in, because it was originally passed in 2021, phased in over time. And I, I believe 2020, yeah, next year it'll be fully phased in. So anything over 40 yeah. hours is time and a half. What are, after this ha- haven't been in place now for a few years, what are the actual farm workers, the folks this bill assumingly was intended to help saying about the overtime rules? Yeah. So before I give what the farm workers are saying now, I think it'd be helpful to recap how we got there a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Because the I was just criticizing earlier legislators who act really quickly without thinking through consequences. But in the case of this law, they were sort of prompted to act very rapidly uh, by action from the Supreme Court or state Supreme Court. Because there had been a legal challenge to the agricultural exemption brought through our state's courts and ultimately decided by the state Supreme Court. Uh challenging the overtime exemption on a number of fronts. And ultimately, our Supreme Court struck down the overtime exemption for dairy workers, saying that it was an unconstitutional granting of privileges and immunities uh, you know, to grant those that category of employers an exemption from a law that applied to everyone else. Uh, you can theoretically do a special treatment if you do an adequate justification for it in the legislation. Uh, that that authorizes it. But what had happened was the court struck it down in the case of dairy workers only, but they had established the precedent that they considered the, the exemption for agricultural itself to be basically unconstitutional. And when they did that, uh, it created a flood of lawsuits getting filed because at the same time that they struck it down for dairy workers, they hinted that everyone else was vulnerable to the same legal challenge and when they made it unconstitutional, the court allowed for retroactive claims uh, for uh, not having paid overtime uh, to those dairy employers going back three years. Uh, so those employers would have seen hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in wage claims and penalties being filed against them. So as we went into that legislative session, everyone in agriculture knew that we were one lawsuit away from uh, from having an overnight imposition of going straight to 40 hours, which is what happened to dairy employers, and a flood of lawsuits claiming back wages and penalties, even though you had been following the law as it was written in our state for decades at the time that you were employing those workers. Not a great situation. There was Theoretically, the legislature could have gone back in and provided a more robust defense for agricultural overtime exemption, specifically around seasonal work, which we always thought was a lot easier to justify. Uh, like good lawyers, the, the labor lawyers went uh, after the folks that in dairy who have year-round employees uh, in, in those dairying facilities, whereas a lot most of agriculture that has use of the exemption has bursts of activity for a couple of weeks and then no more work to do, uh, which is originally why the agricultural overtime exemption was there, because it's not like you can postpone harvest work for the next 40-hour work week. You do it now or you don't do it at all. Uh, 
And as a result, we really had two options: wait for the, you know, you know, wait for the court to come and get us, or negotiate some kind of settlement with a legislature that was very much inclined uh, to think that the the immediate exemption, you know, immediate removal of the exemption was a good thing. Um, and that's how we ended up with getting a phase in and a protection from retroactive liability claims uh, it, the, getting passed by the legislature, generally with the support of agricultural producers, because the alternative was wait for that lawsuit to be filed, have it happen overnight, and have the, the trial lawyers come for you with, uh, with demands for very large checks getting written. Uh, that settlement was supposed to have included a seasonal flexibility uh, provision, which would, require, which would have allowed up to about 12 weeks a year where a producer could go up to 50 hours before that time and a half uh, kicks in. Uh, that's what a lot of other states that have put in an agricultural overtime requirement allow. Uh, and it was something that we thought we had agreement on. Uh, but again, we were negotiating from a very weak and vulnerable position. And at the last minute, that part was stripped out of the bill. And we were told, well, we'll come back and revisit that later. Uh, we're still waiting for the later. <laughs> and have been discussing that issue with them since and continue to do so. But as we get closer to 40 hours, to answer your original question, Workers are getting more and more unhappy uh, because they're seeing their hours of offered get cut. And instead of earning more money from overtime, uh, they're seeing a reduction in their income. And they're saying, well, there's, you're just you're hiring more people. Uh, and and that's not helping my bottom line any, uh, which, of course, was part of the original purpose of overtime pay requirements when they were instituted in U.S. law largely in the 1930s during the Great Depression. It was to increase employment at a time of mass unemployment, uh, limiting the number of hours any one individual could work was an obvious incentive to employers to hire more people. And that's exactly what's been having to have happen. Uh, and in this environment, it's not really to the benefit of those workers. And they've increasingly made their voices heard to that effect, uh, both in testimony and hearings in Olympia and some uh, public events they've been holding in central Washington here uh, through the end of the harvest season. Uh, they're, they're not looking forward to the, the fixed 40-hour cap next year. Well, yeah, you used to walk into any fast food restaurant and see a dozen teenagers back there. And now you walk in and you see four or five robots ready to take your order. Um, but yeah. you know, along, along that same vein, uh, you know, I've, I've heard of legislation around, you know, temperature requirements, air quality requirements, as far as being able to harvest. And so to, to what extent is that impacting the industry? Yeah, that's not legislation, it's regulation in this case. Uh, Department of Labor and Industries has passed, uh, a, a finalized a new rule that took effect earlier this summer after two previous years where they'd done temporary emergency rules uh, around new requirements uh, for uh, high heat uh, exposure for all outdoor workers. So agricultural workers are often you know, held up as the example of why that's needed. Um, obviously, you, you protecting workers or anyone from high heat and the risks of heat uh, stress is, is important. Sure. The question is, how, how complex is the requirement to comply with? Uh, and that's where, in some cases, this is, this is challenging because you, you have uh, employers have to watch the temperature and clock exactly how many hours from when you cross that temperature threshold before you trigger a mandatory cool down break. Uh, 
Uh, does it synchronize with existing uh, lunch or rest paid rest breaks, or is it a separate cool down break? Uh, you know, you have requirements for paid employee initiated breaks. So anytime an employee feels they need a cool down break, they can take one on the clock to make sure that they don't hurt themselves. Uh, but how are you tracking that in your payroll system? Uh, a lot of the, that added complexity uh, of those rules uh, is something that employers have to struggle with. And when you think about managing that in an office is complicated enough, doing it in different farm environments you might be moving from one orchard block to another your your office is a truck and a cell phone you know trying to keep track of 100 people's breaks uh and and watch the, the temperature changes uh over the course of the day when you're in you know peak harvest periods those are complicated things to manage with a high risk of severe penalties if you get them wrong uh, same thing with uh, the proposed rule on smoke exposure. Uh, we all know that being outside in smoky conditions isn't fun. Uh, and the, the new rule that is uh, in, in nearly final form, and I understand it's going to be published in December, uh, if, if what I hear from LNI is correct, would have a series of thresholds as air quality worsens to go from you have to warn people of the conditions to you have to make PPE available to you have to distribute it to where it in high levels of, uh, you know, smoke in the air, you'd be required to actively wear and use the PPE. Uh, you know, that is a good change from some earlier drafts, which would have made mandatory use uh, of the, of those masks uh, required earlier in, in the, uh, you know, lower AQI levels, lower air impairment levels. And any employer who had to be the mask police during COVID knows that that was extremely contentious. Telling people it's for their own good, uh, you know, they'll say, yeah, okay, thanks for the advice. But they don't really appreciate being forced to do something for their own good in the workplace or anywhere else. Uh, and so we as agricultural employers had very long discussions with L&I about Telling them they should do it and giving them the, the tools necessary to do it is one thing. Making us the mask police is uh, is asking for a lot of trouble that we didn't enjoy during COVID. Yeah, because there aren't already enough things to, as you just said, keep track of, pay attention to. <laughs> so yeah, there's so many things that would keep you safer in your life, but do you, are you always as wise about them as you should be? Yeah. It's, it's not that far from other chronic health exposure risks, you know, that everyone knows they shouldn't do. Uh, but is it the employer's responsibility to enforce that? You know, we know that there'll be metabolic consequences to eating donuts for lunch every day. But does your employer need to go in and, and police what you're having for lunch in the office cafeteria? I don't know. That's an interesting question, isn't it? Is, is it fair to ask whether or not all this regulation increases the cost of food? Um, it can. Uh, the unfortunate reality of agricultural production is most producers of, of food aren't price takers and not price setters. Uh, so more than increasing the price of food directly, it drives a lot of producers in the states with these regulatory climates out of business. Uh, and it may shift production elsewhere. And ultimately, that may result in, in higher prices. If, if you think about uh, the effects of monopolization or turning food production into a, essentially a regulated utility, that's probably not good for consumers over the long term. 
but does it immediately result in those costs being passed on? No. In fact, that's a, a discussion we often have with, uh, with legislators and others in government. You know, I, I like to say they have sort of the, uh, the corner lemonade stand mental model of business where anything that's the production cost just gets baked into the price and will be passed on to consumers always ignoring the, the substitute goods options or the uh, alternate suppliers options. Uh, and in a, the world market for food, which is pretty open, our, the United States market is notoriously open to imported food products uh, with very few tariff or non-tariff barriers. Uh, we do not have the ability to, to just pass on those cost increases to our customers. Yeah, that was kind of along the lines of the question I had. I, I was going to actually ask to see. Um, so and this is a couple of years out, years old now, so it might have changed or it's probably increased. But for roughly every thousand dollars added in uh, regulatory or tax costs to developers, another twenty five thousand or so families are priced out of a house, out of households. Um, and, and again, and again, I'm sure that's only increased in the last few years. So since we can't necessarily calculate the the cost or maybe it hasn't been calculated the cost of regulations to the price of an apple most of the folks listening to this are going to come from the consumer side of uh, the equation do you have any sense for perhaps a historical view and a history it sounds like based on your education a historical viewpoint of for every x number of regulatory dollars uh, a percentage or number of producers shut their doors it's there it's a an identifiable trend. Um, I'm not enough of an economist to be able to quote an exact correlation of for every X dollars of cost, you get Y resulting change in, in pricing. And part of that too, is that in a manufacturing environment, for example, uh, your production remains fairly consistent. In a lot of agriculture, you, you still have these wild swings in supply as a result of weather conditions. Uh, so it's very hard to isolate those factors. Uh, and the supply and demand of the price effects in the market uh, from these other factors. Uh, because for example, in, in our Apple industry here in Washington state, in 2022, we had a very cold spring uh, and we had snow on trees as they were blooming and that interfered with pollination. And so for the crop harvested in the fall of 2022, we ended up with about 104 million boxes of fruit ended up getting packed out of that, uh, that crop when our average the previous two years had been a little over 120 million boxes. So our acreage stayed about the same. We weren't doing anything appreciably different in terms of our production regulatory environment, really, but we had a 20% decrease in supply. Uh, whereas this year with, again, not a lot of acreage planted, it's been about the same as the previous year uh, because these are, you know, it takes many years to get an orchard established. Uh, we had a much larger crop, uh, we're predicting around 140 million boxes versus 104 million last year. Uh, because as anyone who's almost killed a house plant could tell you, if you if you have a, a bad year or it gets a plant gets stressed, it tends to go into survival mode and go big into blooming and production of fruit the following year uh, to try to save itself and propagate itself. So we have a very big apple crop this year. And so isolating those swings in production uh, around pricing effects can be really hard, uh, you know, to isolate that from these other cost factors related to regulation. But clearly, the increased uh, regulatory and and uh, narrow margins environment that producers are facing does drive a lot of producers out of business. 
what we struggle with in, in our industry and in agriculture is there's such a shortage of ag land that mm-hmm. the loss of producers doesn't mean the loss of farms as directly as people would think. It's not like if a restaurant goes out of business, they clean out all the equipment and a for lease sign goes up. If a farmer goes out of business, someone else buys his farm, it's still farmed, and it's just now part of a bigger overall operation. Uh, and in some cases, what we're finding is that outside investor groups, uh, you know, pension funds and so on, come in and buy up that agricultural land and retain the previous owner now as a paid employee to manage that farm. So that you drive by the farm, it's still Mr. Jones there. He's still out on his tractor. You wouldn't notice any difference. There was never a for sale sign that went up, but he's gone from being the owner of a small family farm to being an employee of a large you know, pension fund or, or you know, venture capital fund or what have you. Uh, and that is a big change in the agricultural environment. Uh, that uh, that capital environment, because while it's not the intent of regulators or government to provide those uh, those landowners an advantage, uh, they have very different priorities in how they acquire and manage assets. If you own multiple billions of dollars of assets under management, uh, the fact that your farm ground and its associated water rights have appreciated in value allows you to book a nice return for your investors. You're not requiring to distribute dividends to them this year, the way that a farm owner requires annual income to feed his or her family and send the kids to college and you know buy a new truck. Uh, so the, the extreme pressures on margins, the lack of cash flow for several years is a huge problem for families trying to live on a farm or orchard. Uh, it is a cash management and investment strategy problem for some other owners, and that provides them a huge advantage in the market. And without intending to, tends to shift agricultural production in that direction. Well, I know we talked about the struggle of, of uh, sorry, uh, the next generation of, of workers. Mr. Smith, that farmer, sending his son or daughter to, to college is probably telling them, no, you go study medicine, law, or business and avoid this headache. Uh, yeah. So. The, the longevity of that model is not one that I would put a lot of money behind, but uh, hedge fund managers don't exactly think, you know, 15 quarters down the line. Well, some of them do. They're like any other business. Some of them have different strategies. And they're again, That's they're true. not bad people, but no. they're responding to and the, those farm owners are happy to have a buyer versus having no one that wants to acquire their farm when they're finding that they can't make a go of it anymore. Uh, the point is that that condition exists because of mm-hmm. poor public policy planning in a lot of cases and not thinking through the consequences of our actions uh, on, and how that's going to change the, the business environment for them. We've had some pretty solid flow and segues in this entire conversation. So I kind of hate to boomerang back because I, I want to go back to towards the beginning to ask you kind of a random question that was just on my mind is, you know, we all listed some of our favorite apples and I know there's a lot of effort that goes into developing those and whether it's private or public. And so how, do, how does that work? Are there royalties involved if WSU develops the Cosmic Crisp and someone, and I, I don't even know who developed my beloved Jazz Apple, but how does that work if if someone privately or publicly develops a, a new fruit varietal? Are there royalties involved with that? And if it's public versus private, how does that manifest? Yeah, uh, that's a an interesting question. Uh, 
one of the things that most people don't realize is that, you know, anytime a bee visits a flower on an apple tree, you've got a new gene combination going on there and a potential new apple variety in those seeds. Now, you don't raise every seed from every apple to grow into a tree. You know, everyone loves the story of Johnny Appleseed, but what you were probably getting was a lot of inedible apples getting established because those not all of those gene combinations are going to result in a great tasting piece of fruit. Uh, once you get a particular tree that's raised that has great fruit quality, what you end up doing is just regrafting the same wood over and over again uh, off that tree in order to get copies of the same uh, genetic material, you know, essentially clones of the same tree uh, to make sure that you have your know, true to type apple production. So anytime you find a randomly sprouted seedling, you might get a grower who will say, hey, this, this is pretty good. This is my apple now. I, I'm going to you know, patent or trademark that and uh, and try to sell it to other growers. Uh, you can also have both private or university funded research uh, efforts to specifically try to find new varieties. Uh, that's what we did at Washington State University with the Cosmic Crisp, for example. Uh, you know, there was research into looking at well, what are the traits that we're looking for? What are the gene markers for those? Raise seedlings that have those uh, traits identified, and you have a much higher likelihood of uh, of hitting the jackpot with a good apple. And once you've done that investment then there's usually a desire with any other intellectual property to try to, to recoup that cost through some licensing fee. Uh, and in the case of the Cosmic Crisp, to try to limit production to Washington growers, who are the ones who funded that research here at our university system uh, to develop that variety. Uh, there's also a strong desire on the part of a lot of our growers to have some control over the total supply. Uh, once uh, an apple is generally available to anyone that wants it, as a lot of the older legacy varieties, you know, Red Delicious being, you know, a classic example, anyone can plant it. Uh, so you have no controls on, on supply and uh, therefore you have very little ability to influence the ultimate price. Uh, you know, there is a relation between supply and demand uh, and price. And so if you can't limit supply, uh, but demand doesn't change, you're going to end up with some poor pricing. Uh, and so that trademark or patent system is not just a means of capitalizing on developing a new variety, but it's also an effort to try to, over time, ensure that growers get a decent return for, for the trees that they plant. Cool. Well, John, this has been a very, uh, I'll say, fruitful conversation. Um, really appreciate your time. And we, we do want to plug, if you want to learn more about the uh, the Washington State Tree Fruit Association, you can go to wstfa.org. And I'm really pleased to to share that um, we, we love sharing other podcast availability. So you can search for the Bearing Fruit podcast, Bearing Fruit podcast available on Spotify, Amazon, and several other of your mainstream podcast hosts. And you can uh, learn more about there. Um, John, anything else we can plug for you? No, just uh, uh, last thing I might mention is that uh, we have our annual conference and trade show uh, every year in early December. Uh, and we rotate between Yakima, Wenatchee and the Tri-Cities. And so we are going to be at the Three Rivers Convention Center in Kennewick, uh, December 4th through the 6th. Uh, you do have to register to actually attend the conference content. But if you're just curious about what's going on in the tree fruit industry, just to wander through the trade show and see the kinds of new technologies that are going into agriculture, 
is free to anyone in the community who'd like to to attend and check out uh, how much technology is involved in producing the fruit that we all love. Uh, thank you again, John. Really appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you at the Roanoke conference in January. Looking forward to it as always. Thanks again, Josh. And thank you, Ken. 